will come from the book of Isaiah, if you'd like to turn there. We're starting in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. The word of God says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we do thank you that the, Lord, that the word of the Lord does stand forever. We pray that this morning, through Dan's voice, you would make low every mountain and raise up every valley. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'm sure you have figured out by now, <clears throat> we're going to go away from Mark for a few weeks and for December do a series on Advent. Advent means the coming or arrival or appearance. It's marked in the Christian calendar of the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which is today, and goes up through Christmas Eve. Advent is marked by a few different things. It's marked in one sense by waiting, by longing, by anticipation. It's also marked by hope and by surety. And so it has both an aspect of lament and joy to it. In Advent, it works for the church in this way is it kind of helps us find our footing and find our place and find our reality in between the, the once upon a time and the happily ever after. That is the first advent of Jesus Christ and the second advent of when he returns. And part of finding our footing in there is that it allows us to stop and see just indeed the effects of the curse upon this world that we live in. That things are not as they should be. That there is brokenness. 
that there is sorrow, that there is suffering, that there is disappointment. And then looking forward to the second advent, with the first advent already taking place, to see that we can have a sure hope that everything will be made right. That things will be made new. That the curse will be reversed. And so we're going to look at Isaiah, different passages in Isaiah for our Advent series. Isaiah lived some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. If you look at your prophets, he's one of the earlier prophets. He ministered primarily to Judah. So you have the northern tribes, which you'll read as Israel, then the southern tribes, which you'll see as Judah or Jerusalem. And so 700 years before the time of Christ, he's prophesying to Judah. And what's taking place in the northern kingdoms at this time is, is that Assyria is coming in and overthrowing the northern kingdom. And so a lot of Isaiah's prophecy is about this judgment and the effect that it's having on Judah and on everyone. That judgment is coming because of their disobedience, because they have turned away from the things of the Lord. Judgment is upon them. And so a lot of Isaiah's message is that when you get to chapters 38 and 39 of Isaiah, he moves from speaking about the judgment that is there and starts talking about judgment that is going to come upon Judah. And he's right. We have the Babylonian captivity that comes some 140 so years after Isaiah's prophecy. And so he tells them that judgment is coming and he begins to warn them and in there that's it's filled with texts of encouragement texts of truth that we'll look at as we go through our advent series and yet most of it is judgment and the people are turning everywhere for hope and for comfort except to god they're turning to surrounding nations. They're, they're looking to the past. They're remembering how things used to be. And yet they don't turn to God. So when you get to chapter 40, something interesting happens in Isaiah. It's if Isaiah begins to prophesy, not to the people of his own time, but to the people projected out a hundred and some fifty years into the Babylonian captivity. It's almost if you think of, of John in Revelation where he's taken up and he speaks as if, about future things as if he were there. And that's what Isaiah is doing is he is offering words of encouragement, words of comfort, words of warning to the people in Babylonian captivity some 150 years after he's actually writing. And so Isaiah, as he writes... It's going to assure these people that God is for them, not against them. That the suffering, that the punishment, that the testing that they are experiencing is for a purpose. And that God's grace is real. That God will be true to his covenant promises. The more we experience of life, 
the more we begin to see and understand just the brokenness and the hurt of the world that we live in. I'm not saying that we aren't peppered with blessings and there's good times, and so I don't want to be a Debbie Downer totally. But the reality of it is, and Advent season, as we think honestly about it, is there are hardships and brokenness and suffering all around us. There's disappointments that we face all the time. Disappointments when you think of, of the dreams that you had and maybe how you pictured your life going. And it just is not turning out that way. Disappointments maybe when you think of relationships and families and, and that you just... You, you want them to be healthier. You, you, there's difficulty there. There's marriages that are, that, that are fractured. There, there are parent-child relationships that are fractured. And you just feel the effects, the brokenness of the curse. Maybe at your work, disappointed in the career, disappointed in where you ended up, disappointed in romance or lack of romance in your life. Disappointed with people we trust, who, who let us down, or most, probably all of us can attest to, disappointed in ourselves. <laughs> Just sins we struggle with that we feel like, man, we should have gotten victory over this by now. Disappointed and that, you know, we're just, we're not as disciplined as we should be, that every year we make the same resolutions and every year they fall by the wayside come January 4th. Well, the truth is the people faced it back 700 years before Christ and as he speaks to people to come, people who are in exile, people who feel the brokenness and the fracture and the difficulty of life, he comes to them, and listen how he opens this passage. It's, it's hard to convey it totally. It's, it's covenantal language. It's simple language, and its tone is kindness. Its tone is gentleness. Its tone is promise. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The, the repetition shows emphasis, shows a passion, a resolve of God to communicate this comfort. These personal pronouns, my people, your God. Verse 2 says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, literally speak to their hearts. What we have really in the beginning here of Isaiah 40 is, is closest to a poem, really, that is set out in a dramatic fashion. He says, whatever lies before you, and there's going to be difficulty, let me speak comfort to your heart. I want to comfort you, my people. I want to try to get that tone right. And I'll, if I miss it, I hope you can at least hear it in the text. That in the theme of Advent, in a world that is marked by weariness and, and disappointment, mixed in with lots of good blessings, but the hard things that come, Jesus is speaking comfort. 
And so we'll look, what does true comfort look like? <clears throat> I have five points. I won't stay on any of them too long. But what does true comfort look like? And I want to push us past sort of the nostalgic picture, the nostalgic sentimental ideas of Christmas. I think Advent does that. There's nothing wrong with the decorations and the music and the fireplace and the chestnuts roasting. If anyone actually does that, I don't know. Um, Those are all fun, good things. But when he's speaking of true comfort, that's not the kind of sentimentality he's talking about. We're talking about deep comfort that makes sense of, of not just sitting on the fire, in front of the fire and having a good moment, but makes sense of living in between the once upon a time, the happily ever after, in a, a, a sin-wrecked world. How do we find comfort in those moments? All right, so true comfort, how do we see that, especially at Advent? One, the promise of peace and pardon. True comfort comes with the promise of peace and pardon. If you look at verse 2, it says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Their exiles largely marked as judgment, as the God's purifying and testing. Our pilgrimage, our exile in this land is largely marked by, by suffering, by difficulty, by testing that is purifying, that, that helps us to endure. And, and he's saying here, that's not the end. The end isn't just that you're judged, that, you, that you're tested. The end is that God might bring you to peace. Peace with him and peace with others. And he adds this. Their warfare is ended and their iniquity is pardoned. I think a couple things. Warfare is ended. We've looked at Mark about warfare on our sin. And just the constant battle that that is. And Mark even tells us that we spare no effort in that warfare. The cutting off of the arm, the cutting off of the leg. In order to fight sin as an example of how serious we are. And so in that battle, we're not speaking comfort to ourselves in the midst of our sins. We're, We're engaged in the battle. He speaks comfort here by saying eventually that warfare will end. That struggle, that battle that we face in this age will end. And it's not just that you've struggled enough or been punished enough to pay for it. It's not that you've accomplished or gotten good enough that, that now the battle ends. No, the battle ends because your iniquities will be pardoned. And we begin to see the first advent here. Jesus Christ has come to forgive us of our sins, to save us from our sins. True comfort is this, that that the warfare will end, that our iniquities will be pardoned, that there is a promise, a sure promise of peace and pardon. Your sins will not be held against you. 
That's the only reason that when we think about Jesus appearing, it can be not terrifying, but comfort, is because your sins are forgiven. Secondly, true comfort comes in the revelation of the glory of God. The revelation of the glory of God in verses 3 through 5, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The king is coming. You understand when Isaiah, prophets of old, prophesied, they're looking into the future. And a good way to think of it is, like they're they're from a great distance off, they see a mountain range. But they're at such a distance that it feels like kind of just a, a single peak rising out of the earth. And that's sort of what they are seeing and prophesying towards. In history, as we get closer to it, you realize, oh, there's, there's multiple peaks here. And in fact, we might come to one row of mountains and, and, and behind it at maybe even greater distances is another row. And we see prophecy fulfilled that way so that when Isaiah speaks of the coming of Christ, we can see much of it being fulfilled in the first advent. And yet we await much of it in the second advent, sort of that second mountain peak out in front of us. And indeed, that is true here. The king is coming. We see that with Jesus Christ, that he has come. We await that in the second advent. Israel cannot save themselves. We cannot save ourselves from the enemy. We cannot release ourselves from exile. The cause for comfort and encouragement is solely this. It is the activity of the Lord. That he is going to come into the sphere of human activity. He is going to enter time and space. Enter into human history. And do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That is comfort is that Jesus is coming. The king is coming. You see there, the voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And it talks about making straight the highways and the valleys. When a king would travel around at that time, a dignitary would come. It would be a big deal if he were coming to your area. And so it wasn't like he would just come on any old dirt road. No, lots of preparations were made that the king and his entourage are coming. And so a lot of times new, new roads would be cut. That you, they would think about the scenery that he would see. He would think about the safety. They would try to make it the easiest course possible. And they're making way for the king to come. And here you have Jesus saying, prepare the way. Prepare the way for the king to come. But then right after you have the declaration that he is going to prepare his own way. He he is going to prepare the way to to come. That that his plan cannot be stopped. 
that his authority cannot be challenged. His purposes will not be thwarted. He will flatten out the mountains. He will raise up the valleys. He will make it a straight path. The king is coming and his purposes will prevail. And this is precisely what the first first advent accomplished for us. He put all enemies under his feet in coming and living perfectly and dying and resurrecting. He defeated every enemy. We wait the final consummation of it. But light came and the darkness could not overcome it. And through that, he is preparing the hearts of men spiritually as we look at this verse. He's preparing the hearts of men to receive him. He's flattening out our our pride and our self-indulgence. He's raising up the depressed. He's preparing the hearts to receive their king. And he does that, as, as Brian even prayed before I came up, he does that through the proclamation of the word. He does that through the ordinary means of grace. He prepares the way for us to receive the king. And it can be disruptive, and it can sometimes be upsetting, but it's a necessary and constructive aspect of our salvation as he makes straight the path. So we see this glory of the Lord. We see it dawning. We see it softly in the baby in the manger. We, we, we've seen it in Mark as, as he makes his way obediently in his ministry, even now approaching his passion in Mark as we come to Mark 11. And yet we await that second advent when we will behold his glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has several devotionals. One he, he writes, he says, We have grown so accustomed to the serene love of Jesus coming that we miss, miss the shiver of fear that God is coming to be among us. But by that I mean we sometimes sanitize and hallmark Christmas so much that it it never gets past a baby in a manger and a neat peaceful scene. But we think it is God coming to be among us. As he says, there, there should be a shiver of terror in that. The glory of God among us. You think of God's glory as it's revealed in Scripture. I mean, Moses sees it, and it's like a devouring fire on Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, Ezekiel catches a glimpse of the glory of God. He's terrified as it's like a a chariot of fire, a warrior chariot thundering down from the heavens. There's the announcement of the presence of God by the angels to the shepherds. The, The sky is bright, and they are terrified, it says, In the transfiguration, the the veil of humanity is is lifted just for a moment. And the disciples see in that bright, stark, white glory of God. What does it say in Mark? It says that they are terrified. We have such a low view of Jesus. I've harped on this 
I know I have. But that his glory is so tame and, and so sanitized that he, he creates no sort of fear in us. I'm not talking that we're scared of him. I'm talking about awe-inspiring, allegiance-inspiring glory. Glory that gives you comfort in the worst of times. Glory that gives you comfort when you're you're facing the hardest of enemies and struggling deeply with, with sin issues or struggling deeply with hardship. It's more than just a, a kind picture that never gets beyond Jesus in a manger. It is the glory of God in Jesus Christ, which should be both a thrill of hope and a shiver of terror that would demand our allegiance. And in Advent, the revelation of the glory of God is what gives us comfort. I'm sure Isaiah, as he's writing, certainly he's, he's got to be remembering back in Isaiah 6 as he's confronted with the glory of God in the temple, his calling, and he is overwhelmed and he falls on his face as though dead. He's a man of unclean lips and he sees the glory and the holiness of God. to find true comfort in this age, we need a picture of Jesus Christ that is robust, that is true, that is awe-inspiring, fear-inspiring, allegiance-inspiring, and not just a tame little Jesus that we're comfortable with. Thirdly, third point, true comfort comes from the endurance of his word. Verses six through eight, a voice cries, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's a quick transition there from chapter five from verse five to verse six from the all-powerfulness of Jesus to the powerlessness of ourselves to the eternality of Jesus and his glory to just the temporal nature but we're like grass that's a good picture it sprouts up quickly it's it's completely dependent on other things it's blown around it's it's not that significant and he says, on our, on our own, that's, that's who we are. It's a paradox in Isaiah, not unlike a lot of scripture, that if we insist that we are permanent, that, that we find lasting permanence and meaning right now in this age outside of Jesus Christ, we become nothing. The wind blows on us and we're The breath of God blows on us and we fade away. However, if we can admit that God alone is permanent, then he breathes that permanence onto us. He he gives us meaning. He gives us eternal hope. He gives us, as Mark would say, kingdom greatness. And that's what you see there. That same breath 
that blows on the grass and causes it to fade, now breathes out the word of God that will stand forever. Promises that will not fade. Promises that are true. Promises that we can rely on. And we see that in the first advent, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. We await for that in the second advent, his glory, the endurance of his word. Fourthly, true comfort finds its consummation in praise. True comfort finds its consummation in praise. What do we mean by that? To fully glorify God and to enjoy him, to to have our fullest comfort in him is to have it fill our hearts and then have it burst forward in praise to others. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not our compliment It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn in the road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. That is true. You think about your joy and your comfort. Is it ever fuller than when you stand with the people of God and start singing praises about who God is? When it's not just truth that you keep in your head and your heart, but it becomes flowing out in prayer. It comes flowing out in song. When you're able to connect with someone outside the church and you're able to tell them what God has done for you, it is praise and it's also complete your own joy, complete your own comfort. You know, that, that's why we have an Advent theme, to sing about these things. It's part of the reason why we have a Christmas program, that the kids can join in, that their joy can be made full in, in the singing. When we do the lessons and carols, it's not just to do something. It's We can hear these readings of Scripture, of God's promises and God's coming, and we respond in praise and our joy is made full, and we lay hold of that comfort that he speaks. So true comfort is consummated in praise. And then fifth and lastly, true comfort comes in the reality of a sovereign shepherd. If you look at verses 10 and 11, it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. There, there's two things married here that we need. That's divine sovereign power and divine compassion. He's the conquering king. 
Look at verse 10. Behold, he comes with might. His arm rules for him. He's the unstoppable, sovereign, conquering king. That's the kind of person we can find comfort in. Who will defeat the enemy, not barely, but he will crush the head of the serpent. Who will prepare his own way. Who is king of kings and lord of lords. Who is holy and totally sovereign. Whose glory will fill the earth. On top of that, he's, he's benevolent, a benevolent benefactor. He brings his reward with him. We share in, in that reward. We share in that victory. We share in those spoils and that inheritance. And so there is divine sovereign power, but it is coupled with divine compassion that he will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom. That he is tender, that he is approachable, that he cares about us. Often we, we talked in, in Sunday school about the Lord's Prayer recently and speaking of prayer. And you need both of these to be true for, for prayer to make sense, don't you? That one that, that he cares, he wants to hear you, that he cares for you, that he has compassion on you and he wants you to come to him. And at the same time that he is sovereign king who has the right and the ability to do all that he pleases. You're not going in prayer to some impotent God. You're going to a God who knows all things and can do all things and is for us and not against us. So we come into Advent season. We have a lot to be thankful for. We just rehearsed things at Thanksgiving and and. A lot of blessings, but there's also the reality that just getting caught up in the sentiment for a moment isn't real comfort and hope. In fact, sometimes Christmas can be something that drives the wound deeper when there's hurt and relationships or, or you've lost loved ones. You need something that's going to give you more comfort than just the sentiment of Christmas. And here in the reality of Advent, God speaks to us and says, comfort, comfort. I want to speak comfort to your heart. Might we receive that comfort from our awe-inspiring fear-inspiring, glorious Christ, our shepherd, our king, the reality of the first advent, giving us a sure hope of the second advent, that indeed we, the weary world, can rejoice, can rejoice and find comfort and hope in the promises of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that indeed it would give us comfort, give us hope, 
Lord, that as we think honestly about Advent, Lord, we, we know that there's brokenness and there's hurt and there's sin all around us. And Lord, we have a longing for you to make those things right, to bring healing. And we know you will, your second advent, but how do we find comfort right now between the advents when we find it in Jesus Christ and him alone and his pardon in the peace that he promises and the glory of Christ and letting that come to its consummation in praise the promises of your word that will last and the reality that you are sovereign at the same time our shepherd that's the keyboard let's play through a verse as we transition into our time at the table allow you to meditate upon the word, prepare our hearts to come to the table feast. <laughs> 